right. Well, if you've got your Bible, you can get it out and flip over to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. The passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. Not because it's difficult to understand, but because it is so contrary to the morals of our current culture. It goes counter to all that's going on in our world right now. And what is this topic that this passage covers? Marriage and divorce and the things that are all attached to that. You might recall that we talked briefly about this same topic before when we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. But today we'll look at it in a little more detail. Before getting into this passage of Scripture and the subject matter that it addresses, I want to say that this church, Touchstone Christian Fellowship, has three objectives in all of this. First, in this church, we try to understand what the Bible teaches, regardless of how contrary that teaching might be to the current culture that we're living in. This doesn't mean that we don't take into account the current culture when seeking to understand and apply what the Bible is teaching. We do. But we don't change what the Bible teaches to make it more acceptable to the current culture. We don't bring our culture's ideas to the Bible and then try to make the Bible compatible with those ideas. We go to the Bible and see what it says, and then we wrestle with how we're going to obey the Bible in the culture that we're living in. Second, in this church, we encourage one another to follow and obey the Lord in all things. We believe the Lord knows the best way for human beings to live. He knows human better than all of us. He made us. Following the way that the Lord leads is the fullest, most peaceful, most joyful life possible. The way of the Lord is not always the easiest path to take, but it is ultimately always the best path to take. Third, in this church... We seek to walk beside one another through life, no matter where we are on the path of life, no matter what kind of mess that we have gotten ourselves into, no matter how far off the good path we've wandered, no matter what our struggle might be in our seeking to be like Jesus. We want to be quick to forgive and generous with mercy. We're to be ministers of God's grace to each other, loving one another, forgiving one another, caring for one another, helping one another. We're all broken and damaged and twisted up by sin. We all have problems and issues and struggles. We are all wounded healers for each other. Matthew 19. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of this chapter. And as we go through this passage, we're going to encounter things that might make you uncomfortable. Things that might hurt you. Things that might make you mad. Things that might make you feel guilty. Things that might make you feel discouraged. This topic is loaded with emotional hot buttons. 
please hang in there. Don't check out. You are not alone. You're not being singled out. There's no judgment here. We're going through all of this stuff together, okay? I want to begin with this observation. Jesus doesn't ever lower the definition of what sin is. He actually raises it. For example, the the law given through Moses said, don't murder. But Jesus said, don't be angry with one another and don't insult one another. The law given through Moses said, don't commit adultery. But Jesus said, don't look at one another lustfully. The law given through Moses said it was okay to retaliate against those who have done you wrong. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Jesus said, if someone slaps you on the face, let them slap you on the other side of your face too. The law given through Moses said to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. Jesus said to love your enemy. At the same time, Jesus is the most merciful and forgiving person we will ever encounter. He wants us to be holy people. Not to earn ourselves a ticket to heaven, but because this is how the people of his kingdom behave. When we try to lower the definition of sin so that we're justified in what we're doing, we're essentially trying to earn our salvation. We are trying to lower that bar so we can get up over it. But we don't want to do that. That just leaves us in the mess that we are already in. See, defining the quicksand we're trapped in as solid ground doesn't change the quicksand into solid ground. We need someone on solid ground to lift us up out of the quicksand. And that someone is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who could ever get over the bar on his own. We need him. We depend on Him. Our salvation is in Him. He has gotten over the bar for us. All right. Verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, He left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. So up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has spent most of his public ministry time in the region of Galilee. Now he's beginning to move toward Jerusalem, traveling south into the region of Judea, and he's on the eastern side of the Jordan River at this particular moment. And as we have seen on many times before, large crowds gather to hear Jesus teach and have him heal their sick. Well, not only have the common people tracked down Jesus at this new location, but the religious leaders have too. In verse 3, it says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? The Pharisees and other religious leaders, they don't like Jesus. They want to get rid of him. They're constantly plotting and scheming against him. And so here they ask him this question to test him, it says, hoping to trip him up, to get him to say something that will diminish him in the eyes of the people or put him at odds with the governing authorities and hopefully get him arrested. They ask him, is it lawful for a man 
to divorce his wife for any and every reason. See, there was a general agreement among the Jews that divorce was lawful. They had disagreements about what were legitimate reasons for divorce. The key Old Testament passage on divorce, which these religious leaders are making reference to, is Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. It reads like this. It says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house and she becomes the wife of another man and, his, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a, cert- a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land of the Lord your God that he's giving you as an inheritance. Now, if you're paying attention, as we've been reading through this, you will notice that divorce is not the main topic of this scripture. Divorce was already taking place within the community. This scripture is about the inappropriateness of a man divorcing his wife because he didn't like something about her, and then she becomes the wife of another man who then divorces her because he doesn't like something about her, and then that first man taking her as his wife again. The scripture says that treating a woman like that is not okay. Men can't just pass a woman around between them to satisfy their selfish whims and use the marriage laws to justify it. That's what that scripture is talking about. Well, regardless of what that scripture was really about, the Jews were using it as their proof text for justifying divorce. And the key part of the passage that their debates centered around were the words in the first verse which say, if a woman becomes displeasing to her husband because he finds something indecent about her, then he can divorce her. So the question that they were arguing over all of the time was, what was considered indecent which would give a man the license to divorce his wife? Well, one school of thought believed this to mean something morally indecent which violated the sacredness of the marriage relationship, such as a woman committing adultery. The other school of thought interpreted it to mean virtually anything about the wife that her husband was not pleased with. If she burned his dinner too many times, he could divorce her. Seriously. And as you might expect, This was the more popular view on how to interpret this scripture. Jesus replies in verse 4, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning of the creation, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus takes us back to the first recorded marriage. When God brought Adam and Eve together, and he uses it to show what God's intent is. For marriage is. God's ideal and intent for marriage has always been that it be a lifelong, unbroken union between a man and a woman. 
says, at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. God created men and women to complement one another. On a very practical level, God made men and women so they need each other for the continuation of the species. Children can only be produced when a man and a woman come together. Even in our modern world of test tube babies, a man and a woman each need to contribute to produce a child. It says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a quotation from Genesis 2.24. A man and a woman leave the parents that they each came from and become a new one together. Now, this becoming one flesh, it's more than just a poetic, romantic idea. There's something more than physical that takes place when two people come together intimately. Paul points out in his first letter to the Corinthian church that when two people are intimate with one another, that they become one body, making reference to this same scripture in Genesis 2. And the implication is that there's no such thing as casual sex. Sex means something. There is more that takes place than the physical act itself. We don't understand that all that happens there, but the Bible suggests that there's something that takes place on a soul level. So for reasons that we don't fully understand, God has commanded us to not have intimate relations with anyone other than our spouse. We need to trust Him about that and obey Him about that. Finally, He says, Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate, Jesus said. Jesus says that we are not to separate or divide or break apart what God has put together. God joins two people together in marriage, and it is God alone who has the authority to decide when that marriage relationship has ended, not us. God has said that the marriage relationship is in effect throughout our physical life. It ends only when we die, just like the old traditional marriage vow says, until death do us part. Verse 7, why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So these religious leaders, they think they've discovered a contradiction here in what Jesus has said. So they ask him, well, if divorce is to never happen, then why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce? We got you on this one, Jesus. In verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus points out the reason divorce is permitted is because of the hardness of human hearts, the stubborn sinfulness of human beings. Divorce is a solution to a problem that should have never existed, is what he's saying. God's original intent was and still is for a marriage to never be dissolved. But sadly, this is not a perfect world that we live in. It's a broken world full of fallen human beings, 
who make their lives messy and complicated by the sinful things that they do. We're all sinful, and we come from a long line of sinful people. Our selfishness and our woundedness make it very difficult for us to live up to the ideals that God wants for us. The Lord making provision for divorce was intended to bring some order in a society that disregarded God's commands and to provide some protection for the vulnerable from the self-gratifying. These religious leaders were mistaking God's gracious provision of permitting divorce as his approval of it. And we need to make sure that we're hearing what's being said here as well. Just because God allows something to happen doesn't mean he's pleased with it. Further, just because provision has been made for our sin doesn't mean we should just go ahead and go there. Our aim should be the Lord's ideal. There's one situation that Jesus mentions here as an acceptable reason for divorce. Infidelity in the marriage relationship. Now the question that I'm sure comes to mind is, are there any other situations where divorce might be acceptable? And taking the full scope of the teaching of the Bible into consideration, it suggests that there can be other reasons. However, most of the reasons that we come up with for getting a divorce don't qualify real well. I'm not happy in the relationship. I'm not in love anymore. Those aren't really on the list. Now you may be thinking at this point, this all sounds way too severe. God sees these things in a very different way than we do. And because we have so deeply adopted the thinking of our culture, it's nearly impossible for us to imagine that it could be any different than what our culture tells us. But before we dismiss what we are reading in the Bible as just old-fashioned ideas which have no relevance in our sophisticated, open-minded, enlightened age, I want to remind us that the sexual morals of first century Greece and Rome, which is the context in which these words were originally spoken, that moral climate would make many of us blush today. Christians are not to take their direction in these things from the culture around them. We're to take our direction in these things from the Lord. Verse 10, it says, The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. We're not the only ones who are thinking, This is way too severe. His disciples were thinking that the same thing too. They're thinking Jesus can't possibly intend for them to take what he has taught literally. It's so contrary to what they have always known and assumed to be true. 
They reason, if what Jesus is teaching is to be taken literally, then it's better to not ever get married. The standard is just too high for anyone to live by. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Jesus agrees with their conclusion and suggests that those who can remain faithfully single should do so. But he also recognizes that not everyone can accept that kind of life. The Apostle Paul, he teaches the same thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, it says, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. We're, we are not commanded to remain single, but we are encouraged to by both Jesus and Paul. If it's something that the Lord has enabled us to do so we can be free from the responsibilities of married life and give ourselves fully to the Lord's service. Jesus will tell us in a couple of chapters in Matthew twenty-two thirty, 30, that in heaven, we'll all be single. Marriage is a part of this world, not the next. Something much better that we can't even imagine will be our experience in the next life. It says we'll be like the angels in heaven in that regard. Well, how do we respond to all of this and apply it in our life? Because we've got all kinds of situations in our world today, don't we? Well, first, I want to remind us again of the three objectives that I mentioned earlier that this church has related to all of this. First, in this church, we try to understand what the Bible teaches regardless of how contrary that teaching might be to the current culture we're living in. And what is taught here is very contrary to our culture. It doesn't mean that we don't take into account the current culture when seeking to understand and apply what the Bible is teaching. We do, but we don't change what the Bible teaches to make it more acceptable to the current culture. We don't bring our culture's ideas to the Bible and try to make the Bible compatible with those ideas. We go to the Bible, we see what it says, and then we wrestle with how we're going to obey the Bible in the culture that we're living in. Second, in this church we encourage one another to follow and obey the Lord in all things. We believe the Lord knows the best way for human beings to live. He made us Following the way of the Lord leads to the fullest, most peaceful, joyful life possible. The way of the Lord is not the easiest way. It's not the easiest path, but it is ultimately always the best path for us to take. Third, in this church, 
We seek to walk beside one another through life, no matter where we are on that path of life, no matter what kind of mess we have gotten ourselves into, no matter how far off the good path we have wandered, no matter what our struggle toward Jesus' likeness might be. We seek to forgive and be generous with mercy toward each other. We're to be ministers of God's grace to one another, loving one another, forgiving one another, caring for one another, helping one another. We're all broken, all damaged, all twisted up by sin. We all have problems and issues and struggles. We're wounded healers for each other. And I, I, it's important that we remember that. Do you remember the story about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and asked him what he needed to do to inherit eternal life? Now, We'll actually look at that story in more detail next time. But for today, consider this. Jesus tells him to sell all that he has and give it to the poor and follow him. And the young man, he goes away discouraged, realizing that he isn't willing or able to do that. That's just too much to ask. And when the disciples see all this, they ask Jesus, how can anyone be saved? And Jesus said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Your life and what God is asking you to do may look impossible to you, but two things I want us to remember. First, you're not alone. Most importantly, he's with you. And we're with each other. That's what the church is for. We are here to help each other through life. And second, we don't follow his commands to try to earn our way into heaven. We follow his commands because we are his children and this is the way things are done in our Father's house. So let's quickly lay out some guideposts to help us find our way forward. When I say guideposts, I mean some of the situations that we are in. They're, they're not directly addressed in the Bible. So we need to lay out guideposts to help us plot a Christ-honoring path forward with our life. First, if you're single and you've never been married, the ideal that we are encouraged to consider is remaining single and living a chaste life, giving ourselves in service to the Lord. Now, if that's not something that you're willing and able to do, then get married. There's nothing wrong with getting married. The vast majority of us choose marriage over singleness. There's no sin in that. Two things, though. We're commanded to not have any kind of physical relations with another person while we are unmarried. We're commanded to live a chaste life until we're married. Second, the person that you marry is to be a follower of Jesus, just like yourself. 1 Corinthians 7.39 Now about dating, I'll just say that if your ultimate goal when dating is to find a life partner, and that is the goal for most people who are dating, whether they say it out loud or not, then it makes good sense to restrict your dating to people who are followers of Jesus, like yourself. 
It's just kind of common sense thing. If you're married, if you're married, if you don't like your marriage, do everything you can to improve it. Work on your own stuff first. The healthier you are as a person directly benefits your marriage. But go to counseling, read books, take advantage of whatever resources available to you. The Lord wants us to stay together. We are one with our spouse. We suffer together and we succeed together. It says in Ephesians 5.58, He who loves his wife loves himself. One of the best things we can do for ourselves is to love our spouse then. We're no longer two independent individuals. We live and die together. Now, there may be a legitimate reason for you to get a divorce, but it's something to be approached with great caution and much prayer as a last resort kind of thing, recognizing what the Lord's heart is for our marriage to remain intact. Now, if you've been married before and you are now divorced, Firstly, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11 says that we are to pray for and work toward reconciliation with our spouse. Now, if that is not a possibility anymore, then the ideal that we're encouraged to consider is to remain single and live a chaste life and give ourselves to serving the Lord. You go, whoa, this is getting more severe by the minute. Can you get married again? That depends. I can't answer that question for you directly. If your spouse has passed away, the answer is straightforward and easy. Yes, you're free to marry again if you want. The death of your spouse has freed you to marry again, according to 1 Corinthians 7, 39 through 40. If your ex-spouse is still living, well, the answer is not as easy. It's not an automatic yes if you're going to follow the teaching of Jesus. Each situation needs to be carefully considered. Have you been married before, divorced, and you're now remarried? We can't change the past, nor are we expected to keep punishing ourselves for our past. Choose from this day forward to obey the commands of the Lord. You are a new creation in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. Live that way. Don't follow the same path you did before. Love and care for the spouse that you have now and be faithful to your marriage until death do you part. Move forward. What about same-sex relationships? Same-sex attraction is not itself a sin any more than having opposite-sex attraction is a sin. It's what we do with our attractions and desires that leads to sin. I may have a desire to share a juicy tidbit of gossip with my coworker. It isn't a sin until I share it. I've carefully, prayerfully wrestled 
with these various passages in the Bible related to the topic of homosexuality. Uh, and unfortunately, I can't find justification in the Bible for same-sex intimate relationships and marriage. I've tried to. I really want to, actually, to tell you the truth. Considering the days we are living in, it would make things so much easier, simpler, because we are so crosswise with our culture with this stuff. Given what I believe the Bible teaches, the same option is offered to the person with same-sex attraction that's offered to the single person with opposite-sex attraction. The ideal you're encouraged to follow is to remain single, live a chaste life, give yourself in service to the Lord. Our relationship with the Lord is the primary relationship for all of us, whether we're married or single. I'm not suggesting that this is an easy choice for you to make. I can only imagine how difficult it must be for you that are struggling with same-sex attraction. I have to just trust the Lord, even though I don't fully understand all of this. I want to say I love you. I hurt for you. I am your brother in the Lord. I am here to talk with you, to pray with you, to cry with you. We all have struggles in this life, and you have some of the biggest struggles of all of us. But this church is your family who loves you very much, and we stand with you in this struggle and challenge that you face. We're not against you. We're for you. In closing this morning, I've touched very briefly on many things. Please don't take that to mean that I think there are simple answers to the struggles and pain that you are facing in your life. Life can be really complicated, and there are seldom easy answers, especially when it comes to human relationships. If you want to talk more about some of these things, let's talk. I don't have a lot of answers. I've already shared with you more than I know. But I can try to help you find some resources to help you with whatever your situation is that you're wrestling with. I just want to say, please don't give up. Please don't go away mad. Let's walk through all of this together. Since the fall of humanity, human relationships have been a mess. What's the answer? The answer is Jesus Christ. When we come to him in saving faith, a new life is created in us, his life, which begins to grow and change us in ways that we never imagined possible. As our relationship with Jesus Christ grows, our relationships with each other begin to heal and get better. And as we move ourselves out of that center position of our life and let Jesus Christ 
take that center spot and we build our life around Him, we're better able to have good relationships with one another. We become more selfless. We become more secure. Our identity is in Jesus Christ rather than in people or some other label that we want to try to stick ourselves under. Our worth is grounded in Him. Our main reservoir of love comes from Him. Jesus has given us the church to be a new kind of family where we can find love and acceptance and nurturing. We have new brothers and sisters and new moms and dads and new kids. In the church, we get a taste of the new kingdom that's coming. And if we're not getting that from the church, well, the church is failing in what it's supposed to do, right? We all need to kind of work on that then. But we're all looking forward to our complete redemption. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul wrote, We do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let's bow our heads. Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. And you know how twisted up we are. And how challenging our situations are in our current cultures, Father. We ask for your help, for your Deliverance, your redemption, Lord. Help us to trust you, Lord, in the situations that we find ourselves. Some of the stuff that we're asked to do seems so difficult. But we know you know human better than we do. We ask you to help us to embrace that, to trust you, to walk with you, Lord. And we pray that you would make each of us wounded healers for one another, that we would stand by each other and help each other. Lord, give us the courage and the strength and the love and the compassion and the mercy to do that with each other, Lord. We love you and we thank you for the good work you're doing in us. We're trusting you, Lord, to bring that to completion and that the glory of Jesus is shown in our lives, Lord. In his name we pray these things. Amen.